everybody, it's Gracie. So I just wanted to shout out our patrons because we're not doing coffee breaks right now. So I wanted to make sure that you guys get a shout out. And I wanted to recognize Ashley, Chris, Keenan, Dorian, Felicia, Janelle, Jillian, Julie, Maggie, Shauna, Slops the Clown, Stacy, Valerie, and Michael, Travis, Jarvis, and James. You guys are all so amazing. We would not be here without you. Thank you guys so much and enjoy the show. Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, and it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season five, episode four, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1999 black comedy slash cannibal film, Ravenous. It was directed by Antonia Byrd and written by Ted Griffin. It stars Guy Pearce, Robert Carlyle, Jeremy Davies, Sheila Toosey, and David Arquette. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it. Still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Ravenous's production did not get off to a good start. <laughs> so one week before production, the original director, Milcho Manchevsky, was said to have submitted new storyboards, which would have required an additional two weeks of shooting. Oh, no. 20th Century Fox, who was producing and distributing the film, eventually agreed to an additional week, even though they claimed Manchevsky had refused to have production meetings with them. Manchevsky had a different story. He complained that producer Laura Ziskin micromanaged the production and went against his wishes when it came to the film's crew and cast. The shooting schedule for the film was delayed due to Manchevsky's and 20th Century Fox's conflicts, but when filming finally commenced, Laura Ziskin was said to have given Manchevsky production notes and suggestions daily. Wow. According to Manchevsky, some of her notes were complaints that there was too much dirt on the actors and that there were too many (laughs) close-ups. Too much dirt? It didn't help that screenwriter Ted Griffin had to constantly rewrite his script to fit the artistic needs of both Ziskin and Manchevsky. Eventually, Manchevsky was fired, and Ziskin hired Home Alone 3 director Raja Gosnell to take his place. What? But the entire cast rebelled against Ziskin's choice and rejected Gosnell almost immediately, for reasons unknown to me. Oh my god. Maybe because he was the director of Home Alone 3. I mean, maybe. (laughs) Good lord. 
actor Robert Carlyle then recommended British director Antonia Bird, who was his frequent collaborator, business partner, and his friend. Following 10 days of negotiations, so this film is already off track, way Ooh, off track, buddy. Bird arrived in Prague to helm the production. She, too, would criticize the circumstances under which the filming was to take place, describing the studio space as, quote, unquote, horrible, and the scheduling of the shoot manipulative. She also went on to say her predecessor, Manchevsky, should not be blamed for the problematic production. Oh, well, that's kind of nice of her. Bird mentioned in the DVD audio commentary for Ravenous that it was tough to do a film that she didn't prepare herself, and that it was a rocky start earning the cast and crew's trust. However, Bird had a sweet and very professional attitude on the set, and even though she didn't prepare the film, she had a clear and rock-solid idea of how to finish it. Working closely with editor Neil Farrell, Bird turned the film into a thrilling black comedy from a terribly serious costume drama. She also edited the film to make it non-linear. All of the scenes with Guy Pierce's character, Boyd, fighting in the Mexican-American War were supposed to open the film, and instead she had Neil Farrell turn them into flashbacks. The film was shot on location in the beautiful Tatra Mountains, which are in Slovakia, and it was also filmed in Durango, Mexico. Wow. The film's soundtrack was written and performed by Damon Albarn and Michael Nyman. You might recognize Albarn's name if you're a fan of the British band Gorillaz, which he co-founded. Get out of town. He's That's the so cool. lead singer of that band, yeah. Oh, my god yeah i love that soundtrack it's so good <laughs> it's such a great soundtrack so ravenous opened on march 19th 1999 in the united states and it was shown in a little over a thousand cinemas making just over one million its opening weekend the film only went on to gross two million though in North America, which was far less than its reported twelve million budget. What? So <laughs> it was a box office failure. Oh. The film received mixed to negative reviews, mostly because the film was misunderstood. However, the movie has since gained a cult following among horror, history, and music fans alike. According to Lewis H.C. in his review of Ravenous, quote, Despite the humor, this snowy thriller still boasts some deeply disturbing themes and imagery and would satisfy any horror hound looking for some substance with his visual meal. Well. <laughs> so with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of this convoluted plot? Oh, I'll do my best. <laughs> During the Mexican-American War, Lieutenant John Boyd is awarded a promotion for his bravery in battle. However, upon discovering that he laid down and played dead as his unit fought and died around him, his general banishes him to a tiny outpost called Fort Spencer in the Sierra Nevadas. Here, he resides with a group of ragtag soldiers, a priest, veterinarian, drug addict, two Native Americans, and their commander, Colonel Hart. One night, a stranger named Calhoun wanders into their tiny community and is brought inside by Colonel Hart and Boyd, who fear that he might be dying from hypothermia. 
When Calhoun awakens, he tells the terrifying story of his descent into cannibalism and claims that he ate some of the people that he was traveling with after they got stranded in a cave during a snowstorm. Calhoun explains that their guide, Colonel Ives, claimed to know a shortcut, but led the group astray into the mountains. Calhoun ends his story by claiming that the woman they were traveling with is still alive in the cave. Shocked from hearing this, the soldiers rally together to go to her rescue. Before leaving, George, one of the natives, warns them of the Wendigo myth, a creature that eats human flesh and must keep eating it in order to survive. The scouting adventure turns out to be a trap set by Calhoun, who is really Colonel Ives. Turns out, Ives planned to eat the group of men all along. Ives succeeds in murdering them all but Boyd, who ends up tumbling down the mountain in an effort to escape, and lands in a pit, leg broken, next to another soldier. In order to survive, Boyd eats the flesh of the soldier laying next to him and is miraculously healed and emerges from the pit after he is sure Ives will not find him. He goes back to the outpost where the other half of the soldiers and George's sister, Martha, remained and tells them all the story of Calhoun slash Ives <laughs> and his cannibalism. However, they believe he is delirious and ignore his story. The only one who seems to believe is Martha, though she thinks that Boyd is the one who murdered everyone rather than Ives. Eventually, a new commander is assigned to the post. In a frightening twist, the newly assigned commander is Colonel Ives, a.k.a. Calhoun. Boyd tries to tell the general who Ives really is, but no one believes him. One night, Ives tells Boyd that he knows he ate the soldier in the pit to survive and encourages his cannibalism by assuring him that their strength is in numbers and that eventually there will be thousands of people moving out west past the fort, thousands of people that they can eat. It is then revealed that Ives kept Colonel Hart alive by feeding him human flesh. Hart returns to the fort one night and kills everyone, leaving Boyd, Colonel Ives, and Martha, who has left to bring back the general. In order to stop the spread of cannibalism and murder, Boyd kills Hart, and then, in an epic battle of cunning and strength, kills Colonel Ives and himself by tussling in the barn and falling into a giant bear trap, squished together, one on top of the other, like a cannibal sandwich. <laughs> All seems well until it's revealed that the general has unknowingly eaten some soup containing human flesh. Martha, knowing that the fort is nothing but trouble, escapes into the wilderness. Wow, thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You're welcome. Sorry it was 10 years long. <laughs> Just well, kidding. there's a reason why. It's oh. because millions of people worked on this film yes. and not together. Very true. So the Bechtel test, it doesn't pass because there's only one woman. Dang it. Technically, there's two, but she doesn't talk. Because she's in the flashback oh, of right. the woman that they go to save. Mrs. McReady. <laughs> she's dead. Oh. So was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Well, yes. Antonia Bird eventually directed it. <laughs> and Laura Ziskin was one of the producers. <laughs> God, Laura. <laughs> was the final girly person of color. Well, technically, yes. Martha seems to be the last one standing at the end. Hmm. And Sheila Tusi plays Martha, and she is a Native American, and she plays a Native American too, which is great. <laughs> 
Tusi, I guess, is of Stockbridge Munsee descent. Hmm. And you know what? She was also in a film that I just watched, uh, Lords of Illusion. Oh, wow. The Clive Barker film. Yep, she was in that too. <gasps> Dang, get it? Yeah. Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? No. Okay. So before we get into this discussion, I want to acknowledge the article Exceptional Zombie Cannibals, Antonia Bird's Ravenous, <laughs> and the Discourse of American Exceptionalism by Olga Ackroyd. It's an amazing article, and I got most of my historical information from it because I am not a historian. <laughs> please, please watch the film and read this article as a companion piece. I would also like to acknowledge the book Columbus and Other Cannibals by John D. Forbes, which was a huge resource when researching not only cannibalism, but colonialism. So check it out. Nice. So let's start off with what the heck is a Wendigo? Oh. Now, horror aficionados and occultists and people who love strange weird stuff mm-hmm. what would that be called if you're into crypt- cryptology cryptology or yeah no that's right okay cryptology yeah so if you're into that stuff you probably already know what the wendigo is if you don't and you for some reason didn't watch the film the wendigo is an algonquian folklore the wendigo or wendigo is a mythical man-eating monster or evil spirit native to the northern forests of the atlantic coast and great lakes region of the united states and canada so it's kind of local it's it is local yep that's awesome i actually scared a friend of mine by telling her because she was like oh yeah i'm i'm watching a house and it's sort of in the woods and so it's kind of it's nice and i go well just watch out for the wendigo and she's like don't tell me that i don't know what it is but i don't want to know i was like oh sorry google it anyway (laughs) the wendigo may appear as a monster with some characteristics of a human or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them become monstrous it is historically associated with murder insatiable greed and the cultural taboos against such behaviors the legend lends its name to the controversial modern medical term wendigo psychosis described by psychiatrists as a cultural bound syndrome with symptoms such as an intense craving for human flesh and fear of becoming a cannibal yikes The film, despite not featuring a traditional incarnation of the Native American monster on screen, is probably the best film about the Wendigo, though. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to mention that we'll talk more about the Wendigo later. Yes, so cool. So cannibalism. Yes, let's get into the fun stuff. This is the fun stuff. So a little background into cannibalism. Although some anthropologists and historians associate the cannibal metaphor with negative constructions of indigenous people colonized by oppressors, John D. Forbes takes an opposite stance in his book Columbus and Other Cannibals. So according to Forbes, traditional ritualistic cannibalism, so-called found among many folk peoples, was essentially an act of eating a small portion of a dead enemy's flesh in order to gain part of the strength or power of that person, or to show respect in a spiritual way for that person. Yikes. So it wasn't such a bad thing at first. (laughs) 
So there's another great book called Carnal Appetites, Food Sex Identities by Elspeth Probin. And she says, if the figure of the cannibal reminds us of hunger, what exactly are we hungry for? So in the arguments of several cultural theorists, it would seem that we are hungry for difference, more often than not understood in terms of ethnic difference. In terms of these debates, whiteness is increasingly seen as a state of incompleteness, and that needs to be supplemented by ethnic difference. So that's kind of interesting because everyone in this is white, if, if we kind of look at it this way, it's sort of like they can never be satisfied. Mm. In Ravenous, eating human flesh makes men into superhumans, but it also marks out the point at which we stop being human. Mm. So in a twist that recalls the colonial history of the use of cannibalism, it is the white man in this film who is savage and martha who is the native american woman reminds the audience that whites eat the body of christ (laughs) think about it won't you (laughs) to reference forbes book again columbus and other cannibals he connects the metaphor of the cannibalism shown in ravenous to the wetico disease which is the disease of exploitation so for those of you who don't know, wetico is actually a Native American term, and it describes a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul. And this is what they used to describe white people. Wow. Who were just ravenous, right? For yeah. the culture to destroy it, for the land, like they just wanted to take over. They just wanted to eat it all up. That's so crazy. Yes. So that brings us to colonialism. So Ravenous is an interest to anyone who is studying like American studies or is really interested in the expansionist period and the gold rush because this whole film references these actual events. As Dante DeMarco articulates in Going Wendigo, the emergence of the iconic monster in Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake and Antonia Bird's Ravenous, The film is an appropriative text that invokes the Wendigo myth and evaluates cannibalistic discourse more broadly in order to critique Western cultural crisis. Through the figure of the Wendigo, the film elucidates a direct relationship between literal cannibalism and figurative consumption of the American frontier. Yes. Another reason why I love this film, because it's incredibly similar to what happened with the Donner Party. And while it's still kind of debated whether or not they turn to cannibalism, there are a lot of accounts of people in the camp that say cannibalism actually happened. Mm-hmm. And um, so the for those of you who might not know, the Donner Party was led astray by someone who claimed to know a shortcut and had, they ended up eating some members of their party after they had expired, which Ives describes basically what happened to him in the film. It's like the same thing. Right. And these were people who were trying to get out west. Yes. And they ended up eating each other over the survival, right, of mm-hmm. of getting there. Yes. So not only did they ruin the Native Americans, but they also affected each other. Yes. 
colonialism, guys. It's gross. Manifest destiny, which we'll talk about soon. Yes. So American exceptionalism. (laughs) So like I said, I don't really know anything about history. And if I did learn this when I was younger, I didn't remember it. Um, But American exceptionalism is synonymous with the post-war of independence period with America rapidly transforming from a remote and largely unexplored landmass to a force to be reckoned with in the world arena. Well, the character of Calhoun is kind of a perfect example of this, which is it's a little bit ironic because technically he's not American. He is American by immigration because he's from Scotland. Well, I think a lot of guys during this time were were sort of lost Europeans. Yeah. Everyone in America was just sort of like that gif of Vincent from Pulp Fiction just looking around being yeah. like, <laughs> yes. where am I? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. But no, he um, is a loner and he's flawed, yeah. but... Because of his cannibalism, he believes that he's superior to his peers, and Mm. he has a strength that is undeniable, but he isn't able to contain his need for more and the lust to acquire more men like him and more victims, and he thinks that he can just get away with it because of his ability to heal and live through disease and injury, and it's absurd, but it plays a huge role in his ego and will to survive no matter what it takes. So that's kind of the attitude of a lot of Americans at this time because it literally had to be that way in order to build the country. So Well, and then the Mexican-American War. Mm -hmm. It's just... A lot of stealing land from other cultures. And seeing these museums about, like we wanted to expand the United States and look at what we did for Texas and trying to make it seem like it was okay. And it was like, well, not really. Yeah. So. Well, and I mean, (laughs) I hate to say it, but like, look who we had as an example, though. Like, we broke away from, you know, Great Britain and being colonized and stuff like that. So that's kind of what we knew is like taking oh, yeah. well, from other cultures and like i said like america at this time was just a bunch of lost europeans yeah and um even antonia bird and uh damon albarn were when they were doing their commentary audio commentary for the film they talked about how it was it was their country's fault that America was the way that it was. Yeah. And when they said that, I was like, wow, a British person, like, oh my God, <laughs> like, actually owning up. But she really said, she was like, I didn't want to make this film seem like, especially since she was British, I didn't want to make it seem like I was speaking badly about Americans. She was like, Americans at this time were Europeans. And yeah. this was what they were doing. And this yeah. was how they were creating the country, which is now the United States of America. Yeah. And not to be like, but I don't want to be like, I'm taking away the blame of Americans because right. they were technically, I guess, Americans at this time. Mm-hmm. But I think it was really interesting that she sort of put that out there. She's like, we're to blame. This is why America is the way that it is. Yes. She's like, British people did this and i was like wow this is so interesting 
Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the wilderness aspect of this film and what it could mean. So this film takes place in this beautiful yet brutal nature. Like Fort Spencer is isolated and it seems like it's removed from all of the conflicts existing in the wider world. Like the fact that Boyd gets sent there and it's got a completely different atmosphere than the Mexican-American war he just came from. Oh, yeah. It almost serves as like this island, like this metaphoric island where the people there can like face their own personal demons. And like some of these ragtag soldiers that you mentioned earlier are like, you know, they have drug problems, they have alcoholism, PTSD, and eventually like some of them start to descend into insanity, aka Boyd. And it's very Twain-esque. It's sort of this optimistic rhetoric that was intended to like personify the rampant conquering of this virgin land Mm -hmm. and in reality it ends in sadness and cynicism and solitude yeah there's this image of like this pioneering like conqueror um but (laughs) I guess also, like, in this fort, like, all these characters are sort of like Agatha Christie characters, Mm -hmm. where they just get killed off one by one. Like, they're so extreme that they're almost, that they're disposable. Yes. Really, in the end. It's pretty wild, actually. It is wild, yeah. And so it's kind of funny that this is, like, takes place in this uninhabited, like, fort, really, and these characters are just disappearing one by one, and it's like, who's the killer? It's the white guy. Yeah. <laughs> the evil white guy, of course. I mean, <laughs> who is it always? Um, but, it's, but it is. It's ground zero. It's where all of this action takes place. It's where this cannibalistic madness takes place, and it will eventually... It won't serve to be this, but it's planned that it will serve like the place where they all will catch these people who are who are moving out west mm-hmm. and they are going to eat them. The fort actually serves as a punishment for Boyd for right. like just laying down and playing dead. But he's sent away from any familiarity to serve time for abandoning his unit during battle. And I think that it's kind of ironic that they're punishing human nature with nature it's like surviving the wilderness is a lot like surviving battle you have to be extremely cautious and sneaky and attentive and you have to be fiercer than your opponent but boy doesn't really stand a chance in either setting because he is so out of place and he's timid and that makes him a perfect target so he's right a super tragic character in that way where like it doesn't matter where he goes, he's just never going to fit in because I, he he seems like a little lost puppy. Like, he just doesn't know what to do ever. Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? 
Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum. Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. It's no wonder that the Wendigo, like, comes about when the reign of terror of these white people, like, begin to, like, move towards the West for manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's, like, we talked about earlier, the flashbacks of the Mexican War, and then Boyd, who's our main character, is, like, sort of, like, listening to all these people talk about exceptionalism and expansion and, like... And he's sort of, like, upset about it. Like, he's not happy with what is happening. I mean, to the point where he is considered a coward because he doesn't want to continue. Right. He doesn't want to do it. And let's talk a little bit about what Manifest Destiny is. So mm-hmm. in the 19th century, Manifest Destiny was a widely held belief in the United States that its settlers were destined to expand across North America. So there were three basic themes to Manifest Destiny. One, the special virtues of the American people and their institutions. Two, the mission of the United States to redeem and remake the West in the image of agrarian America. And three, an irresistible destiny to accomplish this essential duty. And a lot of people were against this. Like Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses X. Grant like hated this idea. Well, yeah. <laughs> so it, it was actually a pretty split thing during this time. Yeah. It would make sense that the Wendigo was within this world at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of to go back to what we were talking about earlier when you first mentioned the Wendigo, um, the Wendigo mythos is also a big part of what's called a culture-bound syndrome in medicine. And this, um, I got it straight off the Wikipedia definition. So you guys, check out the link in the show notes. (laughs) I'm not a doctor. We are not physicians. Donate to Wikipedia. Yep, yep. Definitely did that this week. so. (laughs) So according to the Wikipedia definition of a culture-bound syndrome, in medicine and medical anthropology, a culture-bound syndrome culture-specific syndrome, or folk illness is a combination of psychiatric and somatic symptoms that are considered to be a recognizable disease only within a specific society or culture. There are no objective biochemical or structural alterations of the body, organs, or functions, and the disease is not recognized in other cultures. The term culture-bound syndrome was included in the fourth version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders from the American Psychiatric Association, which also includes a list of most common culture-bound conditions. And more broadly, 
an epidemic that can be attributed to cultural behavior or patterns or suggestion is sometimes referred to as a behavioral epidemic. As in the case of drug or alcohol abuse or smoking, transmission can be determined by communal reinforcement as well as by person-to-person interactions. On etiological grounds, it can be difficult to distinguish the casual contributions of culture and disease from other environmental factors such as toxicity. So, that was a whole big mouthful of science-y stuff. Yep. But basically, <laughs> I think this actually fits really well in regards to this film because it is on the cusp of manifest destiny. And it's the beginning of progress and industrial revolution in our country. And it was on the lips of every American and, Im- and immigrant in America. We wanted more and we needed bigger, better, faster. This need for progress was like an epidemic, and much like the Wendigo, the hunger never seemed to be satisfied. Oh, yes. We had to remove entire cultures from the equation of our country, and we destroyed the lives of thousands of Native Americans in order to become bigger and stronger. And if we want to get really specific with the characters in this film, Calhoun is the introduction of the epidemic. He's the insatiable lust for progress and strength, but in his wake, he leaves a path of destruction and death. And he's like, he's basically like the metaphor for American leaders at the time. So tying this all in with like a culture bound syndrome, of course. I mean, it's not that far-fetched to think that, like, cannibalism could be a real thing. And it could be... I mean, yeah. The, like, it is y- a real thing. I mean, I'm I'm saying, though, like, in terms of our country's birth and growth right. and beginning, like, it's not that hard to believe that we would do this to each other. Because we did so many other terrible things. Not only to the Native Americans, but to, like, the Mexicans that we stole land from. Right. And, like, it's just wild to me. It's so crazy. Yeah. So, final thought. Martha and gender in Ravenous. Yes. So, Antonia Bird said in the audio commentary for the film that it was difficult to direct a film about men. She was... <laughs> I mean... She was keen to develop the character of Martha, even though she didn't have a lot to say in it. So she would, like, do little things in the film to, like, give her, like, these standout scenes. And Martha doesn't, still doesn't have a lot of screen time, but Bird wanted her to be the one who walked away from it all. Yes. And not just because she's Native American, but because she was the only woman at this fort Mm -hmm. so we also have an emasculated boyd right like you had mentioned earlier like he's really meek and and quiet Mm -hmm. and out of everyone on this fort he seeks advice from martha who is the only woman and the only remaining native american at the fort Mm. and after assuring her that he did not kill her brother george he exclaims i need to know how to stop it how do you stop And instead of offering reassurance, Martha explains to him, you don't. The Wendigo takes, it never gives. You must die. I mean, he followed her advice? He did. And it's so interesting that she was just like, maybe you aren't as like, maybe you are like more meek than 
other than, than let's say like Robert Carlyle's character than Calhoun slash Ives. <laughs> like maybe you are more like that, but you still ate somebody. Yeah. You still fought in the Mexican American War. Mm-hmm. You're still a murderer. You have to die. Oh. Yeah, and it's it's so good. So I also thought it was interesting that it would make sense that the Wendigo wouldn't affect a woman because she is a biological giver of life. Oh, yeah. She's the mother figure, right? So Mm -hmm. the fact that Martha resists a masculine Wendigo, it sort of illustrates her sanity. Okay. And it sort of suggests like the necessity to move beyond the cannibalism and exploitation because she is someone who is all about life and and the earth and she and because she's a woman, then she's the bringer of life. Right. So I thought that was kind of interesting that it would make sense that she would be not into that at all. Heck yeah. (laughs) That would make sense because Calhoun also gives a name to his cravings, uh, Boyd so Boyd wishes to end, and amplifies the impact of gender on the cravings and their manifestation. Mm. And he says to Boyd, when Boyd is saying that he wants to resist the Wendigo, uh, Ives slash Calhoun says, and that's what surprises me about you, Boyd. You've tasted it. You felt its power, yet you're resisting. Why? And it just shows that Boyd's answer to this underlies the gendered frameworks of which the Wendigo is constructed because Boyd explains that cannibalism is wrong and Ives slash Calhoun connects this morality with Boyd's Boyd's cowardice, meaning that you're emasculated. You're not a man. Oh, yes. Wow, dang. Because, like, Boyd resists it even though he's felt it, right? So, like, Boyd being, like, a man, like, he, he's, he's been there, he's done it, but he doesn't like it. Where Martha, who's the Native American woman, escapes it. And then Calhoun, who is the toxic masculine, who is basically toxic masculinity, he embraces the Wendigo. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so, Whoa, dang. Yep. It kind of makes me think that Martha is like, she is like Boyd's opposite. Like the same yep. but opposite. She's a quiet, independent observer and... From this, we can kind of gather that she and her brother probably made their living as guides because they know the land well, and this makes them valuable to the men in the community. But Martha has no issue going off by herself and riding alone and, you know, taking care of what needs to be taken care of, basically. Right. That's so true. Another thing that I loved about her is that she isn't sexualized and she isn't like a fetish for the men in the fort, which is incredible. Because I feel like that's usually a common plot point in films like this. She easily could have been, like, the terribly tropish fetish for these white guys, yeah. Well, because we see a lot of, like, quote-unquote, white men taking natives for brides. Right. And it was refreshing to see her as just her own character. I mean, she was kind of an equal, really. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And she seems sort of fluid in gender. And other than some of the men calling her woman, her gender isn't seen as a weakness. Like you said, she's an equal, and she's sometimes braver than the men in the camp. I mean, she's braver because she doesn't conform to the Wendigo. Right. She leaves. She's like, F this, and she (laughs) takes off. Boy, bye. Yeah. (laughs) But I think really the most interesting thing about Martha is that she doesn't 
have the ambition that the men in the fort do. And I'm talking about ambition like in the negative sense. So that ultimately is what saves her from the Wendigo. There's this theme that carries through the film of men whose ambition and weaknesses get the best of them. But Martha doesn't really seem to have like any vices and I think her biggest character flaw is that she cares so much and that she is forgiving well and even then like she is but then she's still no she still shows Boyd that she's mad at him right for conforming to the Wendigo yeah you know even though she might forgive she's she's silently judging yeah (laughs) (laughs) she's like a cat Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and you'll be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies sometimes over there. So become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. We're also on Tumblr at Good Morning Nancy. Also, tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs>